0: Well, good morning, Desert Springs Church. It's so good to see you and a privilege and an honor to be with you. I would ask you that you meet me in Philippians chapter 1 if you have a copy of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me just be quick to say what a privilege it really is to be with you and how refreshing it has been to worship with you this morning. Jeannie and I both just standing here, I know, uh, are so encouraged by what God is doing in this church and the witness that you're having for him and his kingdom here in Albuquerque. I bring you greetings from Biola University uh, since 1908, one of uh, our great institutions of Christian higher education on the West Coast. And I guess I've got bees on the brain a little bit because as I've thought about just my short time even in Albuquerque, uh, I'm aware of balloons. Clearly that's a thing and how awesome that you have this concentrated effort to reach out in a remarkable opportunity when people from all over the world, it sounds like, come to your city to see hot air in the sky. (laughs) Balloons. I mean, everywhere I go, like even in the hotel this morning leaving, we're talking with the the guy at the counter about balloons and how amazing it's going to be for the hotel industry. And I've also got another B, burritos, because... (laughs) with your church elders, some of your elders and staff yesterday at lunch, uh, I saw one of your pastors, who I won't name, uh, take a burrito the size of a newborn baby. (laughs) I won't name the place of the rest, the name of the restaurant or the church member. Uh, He's a good guitar player. Um, (laughs) This burrito, I mean, you could have wrapped it in swaddling clothes. clothes, And uh, it was it was remarkable and delicious so i have enjoyed jeannie and i both have enjoyed being here and all that albuquerque has but honestly the choicest gifts that the lord has given to us in our time with you has been just our fellowship with you and with people we love uh the kellys the daniels the schroders people we've known for a long time and then new friends uh, with whom we're also family in the family of god aren't we so thank you for for indulging me in just that word of greeting and uh, appreciation for all that God's doing here in your midst. If you would, I don't know what you're accustomed to, but I'm going to ask you if you would stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. So if you're not used to that, here you go. But just because this is the word of Christ being read for the people of God, and we pray for the help of the Spirit of God. I'm going to pick up in verse 21 there in Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes this, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? And then we'll... Father, we again, we just breathe a quick word of prayer asking for your help. Uh, would you, as we have just sung, uh, would you illuminate our hearts? And as we sang, Lord, I pray that you would fill my lips with messages of thee. Uh, Lord, would the Words that are spoken in this place only correspond to your truth. We pray, Lord, that you would do a good work in every heart in this room this morning, that we would not only be hearers but doers, and that, Lord, you would give the gift of faith where it is needed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Get busy living or get busy dying. Anybody know that refrain? I won't give you a spoiler, but it comes from one of my favorite movies. Maybe you know the scene in the Shawshank Redemption. This is not an endorsement for a movie. Don't get me in trouble or anything like that. But it's a a poignant moment in this well-known film, a film that tells the story of a man imprisoned for life after being convicted of murdering his wife and another man. Again, I promised you I'm not going to give you a spoiler there. The lead character Andy Dufresne is played by Tim Robbins and Andy in this character tells his newfound prison friend that he's discovered he only has two options. He's stuck in the horror of this prison, clearly unable to get out, clearly unable to find life on the other side of the wall and yet he is trying to have to discover what will it require of him to, frankly, survive within the prison. And this sentence is given. You have two options, Andy. Get busy living or get busy dying. One or the other. There's no in-between. That scene in that film came to mind as I've read this passage this morning because we're reading a story in a letter From another prisoner, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing in a prison cell to a church that he loved, reflecting on the realities of life and death. And while Andy Dufresne was confronted with the reality of two available options, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, actually lifts our eyes up to a higher, holier, heavenlier perspective, an eternal perspective on these two realities, these two options, living and dying. So what I want to do with you this morning is reflect on these two realities in Paul's remarks to the church in Philippi and what that might mean for you and for me in 2022, all these centuries later. Paul makes a couple arguments, and I first want to think with you about This claim that knowing Jesus gives a new perspective on death. So if you're taking notes, that's our first kind of point. Knowing Jesus gives a new perspective on death. Paul makes an overarching claim. You heard it there in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So you hear the two options there, right? Living, dying. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let's start with the end, the death part. Right? Let's, let's, let's lean in there to begin with. He claims that to die is gain. That's a dramatic, shocking statement. We're accustomed to it because, you know, this is one of those verses that people put on, you know, Hobby Lobby posters. Some of you maybe have it tattooed on your body even. I don't know. But we're accustomed to this verse. It's a familiar one, a beloved one. Our culture, though, let's be honest for a moment, our culture does not know what to do with death. It makes us uncomfortable. I, I just read this week before coming to Albuquerque that the California legislature has approved human decompos- decomposting. What would you call that? Composting, I guess. I'm looking at Kristen here because I know you're a gardener. Okay. No, no. Uh, decomp- yeah, Human composting as a way of disposing of human bodies, right? So in California, you can bury or cremate. Now you can choose to be composted. Greetings from the West Coast. (laughs) But I suspect that it's not just California. Our our whole culture, we we are uncomfortable with death. We don't know how to think about death. We, We don't know how to talk about it. And frankly, even the way we treat the bodies of the dead reflects some of our confusion about death. Most of the time, we'd rather look away from death, it makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it even haunts us a bit. I think this is very true of our culture. Death kind of haunts us, reminding us of the fragility of life and the reality that every person, every person will one day breathe their last. But Paul says, shockingly, that for him, death represents gain. Did you catch that in the text? It's so dramatic. How can that be? How can Paul claim to the church in Philippi, which actually culturally wasn't that different from our culture, that death is gain for him? What would that look like in 2022? Well, there are a couple realities, a couple reasons why Paul can claim that for him, death actually is not a loss, but a gain. One, Christian death involves a departure. So in this framework, in this reflection on the the reality of death as gain, Paul says that death involves a departure. Look at verse 23. He says again, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. I long, another translation puts it, I long to depart and be with Christ. For the Christian, you see, death, does bring an immediate release from the weight and the burdens of the world. Immediate release. And maybe this morning, for those who are afflicted, this is perhaps a particular hope. I mean, those who suffer in ways in which many of us in this room have never really tasted, and for whom death actually represents a genuine departure from this world. Now, I, I believe there's a, there's a way in which you can, even from a secular framework, you could say, well, I want to depart from this world. I just, I'm just done. I want to tap out. It's too hard. It's too painful. The suffering's too real. And, and, and friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, actually the Christian faith has a category for it. It recognizes that the world is hard and difficult and there's suffering, and that there is a part of us that says at times, I just want out. But that hope of departure is hollow. It has no weight or substance to it if it is only a departure from the burdens and hardships of the life of this life. That's because, you see, friend, Christianity is more than just an escapist death wish. That's not what Christianity is about because the second part is key here. Christian, Christian death involves not only a departure, but it involves a union. So Christian death involves a departure, but also involves a union. Paul makes clear that most wonderfully, most gloriously, death ushers us, the Christian, into the direct and personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our great hope. It is not only a departure. It's a union to be with Jesus. The Bible is abundantly clear that when a Christian dies, he or she goes immediately to be with the Lord. There may be some mystery about what's on the other side of that last breath. Exactly how does that work? And just, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, don't believe the hype from the books of people who say they went there and came back. We don't know yet fully what that looks like. But what the Bible makes abundantly clear is that to die for the Christian means to immediately be in the Lord's presence. There is a lot we don't know. Maybe you've stood at a loved one's graveside and you've thought through tears. You've wondered, what are they experiencing right now? What would that be like? There is so much that has not yet been revealed to us about this experience, this post-mortem experience. But the Bible is clear about this. Let me give you one passage that maybe you're well familiar with. When Jesus knows this, he tells this with full assurance to the thief on the cross. What does he say to the penitent thief? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's not misunderstand Paul here, though. Paul doesn't romanticize death. Now, he has a vision of what's on the other side of death. Presence, union with the Lord. That's why it's gain. But there's no romanticization here of death in and of itself. This is, I think, where we also need to push back against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Death in and of itself is not natural. Death in and of itself is the consequence of our first parents sin Jesus himself you remember he wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus so we don't romanticize death or pretend that death is somehow a happy thing in and of itself we grieve and we mourn at death I like how one commentator puts this Alec Matier, some of you may know Alec Matier's writings he puts it this way tears are proper for believers indeed they should be all the more copious For Christians are more sensitively aware of every emotion, whether joy or sorrow, than those who have known nothing of the softening and enlivening grace of God. If you know God's grace, your heart actually is even more tender to the pain of loss and death. But make no mistake about what is completely absent in Paul's perspective on death. So the Bible, Christianity, takes this remarkably balanced, and enriched approach to death. Death is gain because we go to be with Christ, but at the same time, death is grievous and sorrowful. We mourn at death. But did you notice what's completely absent in Paul's perspective? Fear. There is an absolute absence of fear. Paul's not naive. Like, and you might think, well, what does Paul know? I mean, he, re- he doesn't know what the doctors have told me about my diagnosis. Or he doesn't know, you know, the circumstances that may await me. He doesn't know the risk that I'm facing here or whatever it may be. Really? Let me remind you who's writing this <laughs> and where he's writing it from. In a prison cell, awaiting his execution. Let me remind you a little bit about the circumstances that characterized and marks Paul's apostolic Ministry beaten to death multiple times, shipwrecked, all kinds of physical ailments, a thorn in the flesh that we're not exactly sure what it was, but clearly he did not want it. And the Lord chose to keep that thorn in the flesh in Paul's life. Paul knows suffering. Paul knows persecution. Paul knows hardship. He knows what a martyr's death looks like. He knows how painful that could be. You want to know why? He was actually, we know, at least present at one before he was a Christian, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He knows what that could look like. He knows how painful that could be. And yet, there's no fear here. I couldn't help but think of the end of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Paul clearly understands that death is the door to, the, to life with God. And maybe you remember the scene there at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia where the children are expecting Aslan, the lion, to send them back to their regular lives and their regular world, hoping perhaps for another adventure in Narnia one day. Right? Just like has happened before. But Aslan tells them something surprising. Here's how Lewis writes it. Aslan tells them, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you as are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. And in the same way in which Aslan describes it to those children, he's saying, everything that you thought was real was actually just kind of the beginning of the story. And now you are entering into the true full story which never ends. Christianity tells us that for all the wonder, joy, and happiness that come in this life, there is an even greater story to come. Here's how Lewis puts it in the rest of the story. But for them, for those children, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a great way of describing what eternity with Christ will be like for the Christian. We should also point out that death can only be counted as gain if we are alive in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've not turned from your sins and put your faith in him, I have to tell you, honestly, I have to, I have to do this, tell you that this, is, this equation doesn't add up in your life apart from Jesus Christ. The only way that Paul can say, the only way you can say that to die is gain in Christ is if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in him. But if you are a Christian, you have the assurance that there is a gain in death, the immediate and full presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing Jesus gives us a new perspective on death, but also knowing Jesus, second big point, gives us a new reason to live. Knowing Jesus gives us a new perspective on death, but knowing Jesus gives us a new reason to live. Paul expresses here that he feels a deep tension, right, between these two paths, life or death. Which one? Now, you heard it in the text. He eventually claims that he would prefer death personally because it means being with the Lord Jesus. I still can't get over how astonishing that is. I'll choose the death option, Paul says, because I know what's on the other side. In fact, I know who's on the other side. But he also recognizes that his life, as he puts it, in the flesh still has value. Now, the Bible has a lot to say on this topic, by the way. From Genesis on, from the very beginnings of the Bible, God makes clear to us that he himself is the giver of life and that life is a good and sacred thing, a good gift, because it comes from him. That's the reason. That's the argument, right? Life is sacred. Life is a gift. Why? Because the giver of life is good and holy, and his gifts are good and holy. And so we are to steward that gift, doesn't belong to us, we don't have a rightful claim of authority over it, but we're stewards of the gift, so we seek to live well and to do so in a way that reflects our identity as those who bear God's image. So the Bible talks about enjoying all the good gifts of life, marriage, family, food, beauty, work, and so many other things. There is a richness and a beauty in life because life is a gift from the Lord, But against that broader backdrop, notice that Paul singles out two motives for his own desire to remain alive, for all the goodness and the richness about the many gifts that the Lord gives us in this life, which we all enjoy in one measure or another, right? Count your blessings one by one. Paul doesn't really focus on those, does he? The things he singles out, why does he want to remain alive? Well, a couple of them here. One is a life of fruitful work. Did you see that in verse 22? A life of fruitful work. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Not a vacation, (laughs) not an easy path, but fruitful work. The assumption on Paul's part seems to be that if God does not take him home to be with Christ, then God must not be done with Paul. If I'm still here, then there must be work remaining for me. And amazingly, Paul says that it is fruitful work. I mean, can you imagine the faith required to be sitting in a prison cell, writing that, saying, I've got, I've got fruitful work left. I mean, I'm not, I'm not done. Like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but somehow I know if I'm still alive, there's fruitful work to be done. What kind of, I mean, honestly, Paul, what kind of fruitful work can you hope for? You are at the end of the road. The resume is over. You are, by some accounts, it looks like you failed. Surely your best years are behind you, Paul. You have very little to contribute to the missionary enterprise. Let other people do it, right? You're of being put out to pasture. He's been sidelined. But Paul has what we could call a big God theology. And he takes it as a matter of assumed reality that God, in fact, actually is in charge. Christian, if God woke you up this morning and he gave you breath for another day, that means he's not finished with you. He is not finished with you. He has fruitful work remaining for you as a child of God. Whatever your season of life, no matter how mundane it may appear at times, God uses his children to produce fruit. So a fruitful life of work. But also Paul says that he chooses to remain. He has a reason to live because he aims for a life spent for others. A life spent for others. Look again at verse 25 now. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul was intent on doing whatever he could to encourage the Christians in Philippi in their own maturity in Christ. There, as he puts it, progress and joy in the faith. See, throughout this passage, Paul has made it clear several times that he doesn't really know what the outcome of his imprisonment, imprisonment will be. He may die, he may be released. If it's the latter, he makes it clear in the letter he will return to visit them and encourage them. And the result of all of this will actually be what? They're boasting in Christ. What an interesting claim. If Paul is able, if the Lord gives him an opportunity, he aims to return to visit the Philippians to strengthen them in their faith, ultimately so that they would boast in Christ. Not in Paul. Not in themselves, not in the strength of their church ministry, their budget, their facilities, or anything else. But he says, if I get to make it to you alive, my ambition is that you would boast in the Lord. Glory to Christ, as we sang even this morning. That reframes everything about life, don't you think? And, and you might say, well, that's, that's the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what people in ministry say. But what about me? Friend, I would commend to you the idea or the suggestion that what Paul is offering here, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit is not just kind of a unique perspective for some kind of varsity Christians. This is the ordinary Christian life. This is the standard outlook on life and death. This is in fact the way in which the gospel reorients and reframes everything that we know to be true to say to us, guess what? No fear of death because death is the doorway to be with Christ. At the same time, life is a gift because it means fruitful labor for Christ. So either way, you win. (laughs) There's no loss. It's all gain. That will reframe, by the way, a whole church. It will reset a culture in a church, a ministry in a church. The reason for some of this is because, as as I wrap this up, on a daily basis, you and I are bombarded with messages about what it means to live a good life. Just think for a moment about the advertising dollars that are spent trying to tell you a story about what a good life looks like, what a happy life looks like, what a meaningful life looks like. We could say what a fruitful life looks like. To be fulfilled, to have purpose. Now, in the old days many many years ago some of us remember these days those messages often came through advertising on television on billboards you know driving down the street or in the newspaper now there are sophisticated algorithms intended to send you individualized customized messages targeted that advertisers think will resonate with you and make no mistake about it they are telling a story live for this Find meaning here. Find happiness in this. So what you and I need every day, not just today, is God's word and his spirit to call us back to what is of supreme value. What is eternal? What actually has meaning? To give us eyes to see things accurately and to tune our hearts, just like you have to tune an instrument. Our hearts need to be tuned back to the song of heaven. May we know together, may you, Desert Springs Church, know and experience in ever greater measure the abundant joy and fulfillment that comes from knowing that to die is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we confess again this morning that our eyes are often clouded by the things of this world and our hearts are conflicted by the things of this world. And we rejoice in the good gifts of this life. Every one of them is from your loving and gracious hand. We pray we would steward them well and that as long as you give us breath, Lord, that you would in ever-increasing measure equip and empower us to be faithful to the charge you've given us and that by your grace we would be fruitful in our labor. But Lord, we also rejoice in what we've heard in this passage this morning that for those of us who are in Christ, there is gain in death. And how we long to be with you, Lord. How we long to be in your direct presence forevermore. And so we confess to you and even to one another, Lord, that our hope and our aim is not temporal. It is eternal. We love you and we commit all these things to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.